If you look at yourself and you look at your daily interactions with other people, I'm about positive you can see places where you could have loved more. Love. Hello, Ark. I am George Bronner. This is my imagination station, but tonight it could be considered our imagination station. Towards the end, I have a question for you. And the last three of my dad's sermons, two of them were centered around a question. And I've just been loving that. So today I do have a question to close out, but I would like to begin by discussing the four types of Greek love. First, and my favorite one, is agape. This is a love that's all about sacrifice. Not only is it about sacrifice, it's about giving and expecting nothing in return. It's an unconditional kind of love. Now next is philia. This love is affectionate, it's warm, it's a tender platonic love. Then there's storge. It's a kind of family and friendship love. It's a love that parents naturally feel for their children. The love that members of the family have for each other or the love that friends feel for each other. And the last one is Eros. It's a romantic kind of love and I'm not gonna go into detail on that one. Please bow your heads for a word of prayer. Abba, Papa, I thank you for allowing for all of us to come here together. I thank you for allowing for us to be in union in your house, Father God. I just pray today that you will guide our minds and lead our hearts to want to learn more about you, to be open to change, to be open to development, to be open to your workings in our heart and in our spirits. I pray that you will guide every word that I speak, every thought that I think, every movement that I make. I pray that you will guide every bit of my being and I pray that everybody here will get something from the sermon. I pray that everybody under the sound of my voice, whenever I stop speaking, will know something that leads them closer to you, Father God. May this sermon glorify you, and may we all come closer to you. We pray this prayer through the precious and the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, and in the Spirit. Amen. So today I am finishing out a series, and this is a series simply about love. The first sermon was about loving yourself. It led into the second sermon, which was about loving God, the most important of the bunch. And this one is loving others. Now, I would like to start by reading a passage. And this passage is 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. Before I begin, though, I'd like to provide a bit of context. It's written by John, and according to Russ Newkirk, he states that at the time, John was the last living disciple. The rest of them had died. Most of them had been martyred for their faith in God. And the people had already tried to kill John. Because of this, he was firm on his stance. He was not beating around the bush, and he was saying things as it was. Beginning, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21 NLT. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. There's a couple things I want to point out in that first portion of the passage. Beginning here, that love comes from God. He is the source of love. Additionally, that we see the example of love from God. He is the example. And also, that we know what real love is because of God. He defines love. And I would like to paraphrase Russ Newkirk again. And he states that love is not God, but God is love. He defines love. Love does not define God. He is the source, example, and definition of what is love. Love doesn't define him, but he fully defines it. The reason why that is important is because you'll often hear people question, how could a loving God do this? Or how could a loving God do that? And what they're doing is applying their definition to the one who defines love. What they're trying to say is that love is God and the true God has to abide by what they think love is. But God is the definition of love. You can't say, how could a loving God do this or do that? Because, well, he's the example. He is the source. He is the meaning of love. Continuing on to verse 11. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. More things to point out here is how we ought to love each other. It's not just receiving God's love, but expressing it back out. How God's love is brought to full expression when we do so. That sacrificial love, that agape love. Remember how at the beginning of the sermon, it was the first love that I mentioned, my favorite type of love, a sacrificial and unconditional love that expects nothing in return. In this passage, every time love is referenced, it is referring to that agape love. Again, we don't define love, nor how the love of God is supposed to function. No, God defines love and As such, it is sacrificial, unconditional, and originated from Christian writing. The other three forms of Greek love had long existed. But this one was unseen at the time. And it first came to pass in Christian writing. When you look back at the past, the way that they expressed love was very different from now. For example, with relationships. Back then, it wasn't just one-on-one. It wasn't just marriage through thick and thin. No, they would break up for small things. They would break up for, well, literally anything. And not only would they break up for anything, they weren't bound to just one person. They had a bunch of people on the side. People talk about having work girlfriends today. They had work wives. They had seemingly no restrictions, and their form of love was all about exchange. It wasn't about giving without the expectation of receiving. That was unseen. It wasn't about sacrifice. No, it was about getting the maximum amount of benefits. This love, as God defines it, is far different than what we had saw whenever man was referring and referencing love. Now, additionally, in part because of this agape love that God defines, we have the marriage vows that we do today and the societal standards that are expressed, such as till death do us part. There was nothing like that back then. Continuing. Well, actually, the love we are to express to other people that the love tells us to, just a reminder, is this agape love, not what we define. Continuing. 
Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we put our trust in his love. In verses 1 through 7 of this passage, I didn't read them, but they talk about what makes a prophet false. And it's primarily defined and relating to their views of Jesus as the Savior. If they don't believe that Jesus came back down, they would be defined as a false prophet, according to John, who was getting straight to the point because he didn't know how much longer he had to live. It wasn't philosophical, nor was it cryptic. It was straightforward how we view God and how we believe in God. The form that our faith takes is just as important, if not more important than love. See, love is crucial, but belief is too. Believing in the right things, because you can give agape love everywhere, anywhere. But if you don't have your faith in Jesus, it's not going to save you. But when you do both, that's a whole different story. And we know how much God loves us because of the fact that he sent Christ for us. Continuing, the second half of verse 16. God is love, and all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Something to point out. It's a process. The love grows more perfect, but it's not like that immediately in regards to what we express. God is in you and he is reforming you when you're expressing this type of love. Is beautiful. Fear is driven out. Certainty and confidence comes in. And it's not to say you'll never experience fear in your life. In this passage, it even gives a criteria for the type of fear. Fear of judgment. Rather, having confidence because of the way that you are living. Because of the way in which you are loving. In short, Christ changes you. Continuing. Verse 18. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows you that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. And that brings the first question for the night. Do you have that one person in your life that you hate? Maybe it's many. Maybe from your perspective, it's not even your fault. It's theirs. Reconcile that hate. It's not doing you any good. There's a saying that goes, sometimes the best vengeance is forgiveness. And throughout this series, there has been a consistent parallel for love. And this consistent parallel is how love is expressed in action. And the greatest action that we see for this form of love is the sacrifice and sending of Jesus Christ. I was reading a book, and it's called Sacred Search. I believe it was by Gary Thomas. And he talks about even what truly measures friendship. It's not feelings. It's not how happy you are to be with an individual. It's the level of sacrifice that you both have made. That's tangible. That's action. That's agape love. Now, continuing further, that's the end of the passage, but there's a bit more that I would like to talk about in regards to love. This month, 
Loving others has genuinely been my greatest challenge. If you've been around for years or even months, you'll know that whenever I'm not in a series, I will usually speak upon my greatest challenge of the month, unless God tells me to do something else. Though usually whenever I get a message title, it falls in line with my greatest challenge anyway. This was spoken a couple months ago, and interestingly, it even fell in line. And in my attempts, sometimes I wanted to quit. Sometimes I found loving others ridiculously difficult, almost as though it wasn't even the thing I was supposed to do. I could look at tons of philosophies in the world that could validate that thought of loving the wrong people is a bad thing. Yet, every time I looked at the Bible, I couldn't justify it. It was hard. Don't get me wrong. I wanted to quit. Sometimes I failed. But I returned because of the hope that I found in the word. The hope for what could be better. And in my attempts, it all began with checking in with the people. Asking them, is there anything I can do to make you feel more loved? It came from a sermon that I believe Brother Joseph preached. And then from there, if there was nothing, I would try and fix unspoken issues. But even from there, there was one type of person that I would have to look out for. And it came from the book, The Sacred Search Again. And the author was describing the types of spouses. And there were two types in this category, and those were givers and takers. The type of person I needed to look out for if I was asking them how could I love them better were takers. Because when you ask a taker said question, odds are their answer is not going to make you more loving towards them. Odds are all their answer is going to do is try and get them more stuff. A taker is an individual that, as in the title, takes. Their main purpose and their main goal is accruing more stuff, personal pleasure, personal delight, greed, whatever you want to call it. And if you ask that person that question, it could very well send you down the wrong path. But additionally, when I did it, most people actually didn't have stuff they wanted to see changed. So the next step was fixing unspoken issues. And this comes from self-reflection. If you look at yourself and you look at your daily interactions with other people, I'm about positive you can see places where you could have loved more. Whether you were too harsh in an area, whether you weren't gracious enough in another area, whether you could have gone a little inconvenience throughout your day to possibly change somebody else's day or life. Now, don't get me wrong. There are also people that seem to be incapable of this. And I'm not stating that it's you by any means, but there are some people that view themselves as perfect. And it's a belief that surprisingly many people have. Especially if you read autobiographies, sometimes you'll find entire chapters dedicated to people that were lost in the belief of their own perfection and how it led them to their own demise. It doesn't even take many sentences. They couldn't see how they were at fault for their mistakes, so the hospital had to let them go. That was a legitimate excerpt from an autobiography of a surgeon. Another surgeon couldn't see their mistakes, kept blaming other people. Hospital couldn't keep them on staff. People that believe in their own perfection get stagnant. Don't change. No need to change. They're perfect or they're sufficient. And there's many Bible verses about this. First John 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. The Bible tells us clearly, and we can see it in the world, there is no perfect person and there is always change that can be made. Reflect in yourself, because that change could very well 
help you love others more, or in extreme cases, save your own life or livelihood. Look at Pharaoh, for instance. Don't get me wrong, God hardened Pharaoh's heart several times, but we can't ignore the fact that he hardened his own heart several times. Had he walked in wisdom, self-reflected and saw how he was clearly in the wrong, how there was clearly a supernatural being backing these people and decided to stop hardening his heart, to put his pride aside and let them go, he could have still been living in his army with him. And this may sound intense. This may sound judgmental, but I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to criticize you nor make you feel less than if any of these apply to you, but I'm here to love you. And sometimes whenever we're in the wrong Gentleness doesn't work. An individual could tap you on the shoulder trying to wake you up, but you remain asleep. An individual could whisper in your ear trying to wake you up, but you remain asleep. But if an individual slams a textbook on the desk next to you, it'll make you wide awake. Now, biblically, we're told to be gentle, so I'm trying to do this as kind as I can, but I'm here to love you, to help you love others. And even if you don't apply fixing perfection to loving others, it could still help you in other areas of your life. Because no man is perfect. And I would say no man is necessarily enough as they are today, as there are always improvements that can be made. And one of the greatest challenges that I had, and I talked about it briefly earlier, was failing yet still trying again. When you fall, it can be discouraging to stand up once more. I even remember this just came to my mind in fourth grade, the first time that I had gotten on a ride on the playground. And it was one of those things where people balance their weight and it goes up and down. And I flew off it. And it hurt when I landed. And I wanted to call my mom and go home. I wanted to give up on the whole school day after that. But my teacher just told me to walk it off. And after I did, I came back and I said I wanted to do it again. (laughs) It can hurt to fail, but it's beneficial to try again and be better than before. The next thing was initially what I thought was going to be the main point of this message, but then I found the passage. Then I had dived into other portions. And that was what happened over this last week. I had a fear of infatuation. After I had finished reading Sacred Search, he talked about infatuation, and I'm going to just tell you this, people. Infatuation can make people make some terrible decisions. Infatuation can make people ruin their lives or even take the lives of others all under the visage of emotion. And I thought, I hope I'm never infatuated like this because I'm going to be led by my heart and my rationale is going to lag behind. And it was only like three days ago that I realized I fit under that category. But I also realized in the moment when I asked myself the question about an individual, what are their flaws? Which is a simple question you can ask if you want to test if you're infatuated with somebody. If you can't think of anything wrong with somebody, odds are your heart is leading you, not your wisdom. And it was there that I almost felt release. There was this fear of love that was preventing me from loving fully. I didn't want to commit to anybody in a strong sense, because I didn't want to be strongly led by my heart. But what that did was it prevented me from going all in on agape. It prevented me from loving others to my fullest extent. It prevented me from allowing Christ's love to shine in me. And then additionally, upon figuring out that I was infatuated, it was much easier to manage rationale in spite of emotion. If you have a fear of love, I would suggest possibly confronting it. 
Set up boundaries if you're worried about certain levels of love leading you into worse stages of your life. Because prevention is the best medicine. And even if you're afraid of love, that doesn't mean you'll never love. Even if you're afraid of infatuation, it'll still find you someday. So it's better to prepare for it in advance. And whenever you're faced with it, don't run. Because as Rumi stated, the cure for pain is in the pain. Fear exists, but you can confront it in the fear. And this is the big question that I had for today. Kind of summarizing this message and going forward. And it's simply, how can you love someone better today? It's good to have information, but it's better to take action. And this question is an actionable one. How can you love someone better today? That's the big question. And there's just one last form of love that I wanted to talk about. And that was sharing the gospel. Evangelism. If you truly believe that Christ is the only way, the way to salvation, the way to eternal life, how much would you have to hate someone to not tell them? There's an example that was given by Living Waters, and it's a much more tangible example. It's you and another person are going skydiving, and you know their parachute is faulty. How much would you have to hate them to let them jump anyways without at least telling them? It's similar in regards to sharing the gospel. And I know evangelism is hard. I think I've got a higher failure percentage in evangelism than I do at loving people. Evangelism is difficult, but still the action is an expression of that agape love. Sharing the word of God with him with expecting nothing in return other than maybe saving a soul, but you don't get anything on earth for that. There's heavenly reward, but it's not on earth. How much would you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? I wasn't even planning on actually asking that question, but I may think it's even a bigger question than how can you love someone better today? This is my sermon. This is the end of the series that I suppose the only thing I could really title it is love. Every sermon title has only been two words, and the only thing that's consistent among them is love. Love. Agape. Giving without the expectation of receiving. An unconditional and a sacrificial love. It's beautiful especially when you are the one expressing it. How much would you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? Thank you. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was the message titled Love by George Bronner. This message is number 4101. That's 4101. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4101 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to iwanttogive.com. That's iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because, brother, you need the word. Oh,